podcast is brought to you by our headline partner, Opus Talent Solutions, supporting TEDx Bristol's commitment to nurture diverse and fresh talent. Social networks don't just look at what you're reading on the social network. They see what you type, they see what you like, they see what you share. And all of a sudden, you're down this quite strange rabbit hole. From TEDx Bristol, this is Reflect, Rethink, Reboot, a podcast about not just surviving, but thriving in uncertain times. I'm Becky Walsh, and in this series of three podcast specials, I meet some of the speakers who'll be taking to the stage at this year's TEDx Bristol on November 17th at Bristol Old Vic. This is the last of our three podcast specials that shine a light on this year's speakers, and we'll be meeting one more of them in a moment. But before we do... In another peek behind the curtain at TEDx Bristol, we wanted to share with you the process that every chosen speaker goes through before they get to stand on that famous stage. TED.com give us a set of guiding principles that we follow when we put on a TEDx event. The main one being to look for brilliant ideas rather than speakers. At TEDx Bristol, we've also developed a set of our own criteria that help us work out which stories will really connect with our audiences and resonate with our theme. We ask questions like, why now? Why them? And why TEDx Bristol and not another TEDx event? We also look for people who are prepared to work really hard. It isn't a case of just being commissioned and then turning up on the day. It's a three-month process of speaker coaching and draft talk writing and editing, which probably feels like they've gone back to school. But it means that when they step onto that red spot, they can really own it and enjoy it. The first thing I wanted to say was just welcome and congratulations. You are all the chosen ones. You've all got really (laughs) remarkable stories and you've all done brilliant things and we're, we're really, really... So once our chosen speakers have been given the good news, so starts an intensive programme of coaching and guidance that helps get the absolute best out of every speaker and make sure that their talk is the strongest and most powerful and most inspirational that it can be. We want to just take a step back for a second and actually think about what is the idea that is going to form the kind of core of your talk. The speaker team that I'm part of are all volunteers, but all experts in people and sharing stories and ideas. My background is as a TV and radio presenter, and I'm also a life coach. But also on the team, there are documentary makers, performers, campaigners, business leaders, and a psychologist. Okay, I'll start with parents. My dad was a technologist, a mechanical engineer. My mother uh, was an opportunist. After all meeting for the first time, we do a mix of workshops and one-to-ones with the speakers to explore their story and work out what elements should be in the 15-minute talk. It's not a long time, so every word counts. They then have a few weeks to write their first draft before being invited to perform it in front of a room full of volunteers. We work with each and every single one of them to refine and hone their talk, help with presentation skills for those who want it, and we're there to help turn inspiring individuals into world-class speakers and storytellers. One of the experts we have on the team is Barney Grenfell from Hoddus Consultancy Co., one of TEDx Bristol's long-standing pro bono partners. It's their day job to coach people to tell their stories and get their message across, from individuals to charities and businesses. They lead to the coaching process and spend a huge amount of their time helping the speakers with both their presentation and their storytelling skills. 
it is a very rapid evolution over the course of a couple of months where people come in and they've got an idea of what they want to do, but actually turning that then into something that they can stand up and present on stage is a really interesting process and amazing to be a part of. The range of different ideas and, and the kind of different approaches, I think they're an amazing bunch of people and I feel like a kind of a proud dad. You know, I'm just sort of uh, the, the work that everyone's put in, seeing that all come together on on the day or on the evening is just brilliant. So yeah, it's going to be amazing. And as one final test before the big day, all of our speakers take part in a dress rehearsal complete with lights, cameras and all the action of the main event. So there's a lot more passion, sweat and dare I say it, tears that goes into a TEDx Bristol talk than you might initially think. But if we get to help create some positive change somewhere through what we do, then it's all been worth it. So, on to the last of the three speakers we're featuring in these podcasts. Drew Benvy is on a mission to save social media, but his online life started way before it really existed as a blogger in the 1990s. And how about this for a claim to fame? He wrote the first page about social media on Wikipedia in 2006. Building his online presence over the last 20 years or so, Drew spends his time researching how social media is influencing the world around us and now works with global organisations, charities and celebrities. He's also been named the most respected social media practitioner in the UK. Drew's talk at TEDx Bristol 2019 is called One Million Harms an Hour. How can we reboot social media? He'll explore the journey social media has taken, looking at some of the most fundamental questions for its power for good and evil, and what we must do to prepare for what's next. Hello, Drew. Hello, Becky. So, sounds like a daft question, but what is it that social media is actually doing to our society? It's fair to say social media is pervasive. It's everywhere. Young people, old people, it shapes the news headlines it makes us shop uh it uh, makes us happy it makes us sad you know it's everywhere and um i think it's fair to say at the moment it's going through a bit of a tough time you've got the people that invented the social networks you're seeing them being hauled in front of the courts you know there's there's new legislation to catch up with regulating social media to make sure we only see the good stuff uh, no fake news that kind of thing but at the same time you know, on a on a on a personal level, it's connecting us. You know, it's uh, it's keeping me in touch with family that I don't get to see as often as I'd like, and I personally don't think it's going away anytime soon. So this is kind of the this is kind of the crux of my talk: is how can we help shape the future of social media to try make it a safer place? Because I don't think external forces are going to be the the cure for any of the, the the bad stuff that we're seeing happening right now. Do you think it all just happened too quickly and we just couldn't keep up with it? Look, the social media came lightning fast, came out of nowhere. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody knows where it's going. Um, for me personally, uh, I stumbled into it. So in, in the late 90s, I was starting in the world of work. Um, I was working in a technology company surrounded by developers, web developers. I taught myself how to code. I was actually, I was, I'd go home, I'd want to load work onto a disk to take it in the next day, and the disks weren't big enough. Do you remember floppy disks? Yeah, I you do. You stick them in, you load stuff on it, but they're really small. You couldn't put a photo on there. You couldn't put 10 photos. So I, I found this thing that was like an FTP site, that's what we call it now, where you load content onto the internet, take it in, download it, and people were writing about their lives on these websites, like personal stuff. Uh, like a web log and that's how it all started and in the late 90s these web logs popped up I gave it a shot uh, started writing about and I to be honest nothing interesting was going on in my life so I wrote about work 
And all of a sudden, this this area of like uh, we call them now influencers, where people write about their work and then become influential in their work. And I, and I kind of stumbled into this space. And right now, the influencer space again, that's something just on another level. You know, people somehow accumulating fame, being given stuff to review in the hope that it might sell more of it, and 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 that's its own that's its own beast that's just taking it t- t- taking on its own um, its shape altogether as well. So in a sense, it's really taken over how we do marketing. Oh, absolutely. I think pretty much any company out there can see value in uh, harnessing the power of social media. You can pretty much reach your target audience, whether you're a, a corporate company or a consumer company, through social media in some way. But down the other end of the spectrum, uh, there's some less scrupulous activity happening there as well. And this is where the legislation is starting to come to try and stamp it out. This is things like spam, fake content, but also harmful content, stuff that has no business anywhere on the internet. And um, and and what I think we all have a responsibility to do is to, to to educate ourselves a little bit so that we can see what's what's really real and what's actually fake. Because there's this weird bl- blurred line at the moment. And I think a lot of people don't really know what they're looking at anymore. And I think also I was looking at a post on Facebook the other day that keeps coming up and up Mm. and up and up. And it's um, a picture of a young man who built um, a windmill in Africa. I watched the film. Mm. And yet Mm. on the post, it says, share this post because and tell this story because the media won't. But it was a film. Yeah. Because I think that, that there is a great power for good in terms of social consciousness mm, and mm. raising awareness to things. So how, how can you tell when something isn't real, when it isn't about social consciousness, that is actually fake news and your heartstrings are actually being manipulated? Absolutely. It's a, tr- it's a tricky one. You do have to look pretty carefully at what, at what you're seeing on social media because you don't know where it's come from. You don't know, put it there. But then uh, messages that are somewhere on the cusp of clearly fake and possibly real could get that they could then get shared with you by a friend. And then all of a sudden you trust it because yeah. your cousin shared it with you or your best friend. But you don't really know what you're looking at sometimes. It's it's tricky. And this is a, and actually it's going to be a theme that I'm going to explore in my uh, TEDx Bristol talk. I'm going to look at how can you distinguish between something that's real and something that's fake. And I'm also going to try looking at how do we understand the motivations behind people? Because we've got um, accounts on social networks that we often think are people. And sometimes they're not people at all. They're bots or robots. They're, they're controlled by computers and they're there just to spread stuff. And we also have trolls, people who just love picking a fight. Often they'll hide behind a fake identity. And uh, uh, both of those types of accounts, if caught by the social networks, they will get deleted. Um, and, and if you're personally found engaging in serious trolling behaviour in the UK, you could end up end up with a with a prison sentence. You know, this is serious stuff, and that, and there's a lot going on to try and clean it up. But at the same time, you or I, when we look at our phones and we see stuff, we do have to think carefully about whether we believe what we see. Because it's not like a, a newspaper editor's vetted everything uh, here. It's like it's like the Wild West, and in in good and bad ways. I'm really excited for your talk. I feel like I'm going to get educated and make myself safe. <laughs> That's really good. What were your early predictions? So you started blogging before the blog was even yeah. called a blog. So what, looking at it, could you have predicted where we are now? Could you see this coming? Um, no, I mean nobody can really predict uh, where 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 we're going. But I could I could see a uh, a, a step change in how information was passing around. Um, I was lucky enough to work in one of the dot coms in the dot com boom, and I could see innovation at lightning speed. You know, there was stuff happening um, so fast that people were trying to keep up. 
So was there an evil tipping point? I, I don't. I don't think there was a tipping point. I think it's been gradual, which is why right. it's 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 hard caught us see. out. Yeah, it's hard to see. Uh, for me, the tipping point in social media was the invention of Twitter. To be honest, uh, because social media did exist beforehand, but Twitter was just like an instant step change. Uh, social networking before that, and social networking after that was markedly different. On Twitter, the first people to um, uh, embrace it uh, on scale uh, were technologists and, and the press. So you could see quite quickly um, stories were traveling much quicker, but I could see there and then uh, the media landscape is going to change and maybe even the consumer landscape could change. So it's not really one tipping point. It's just become a very uh, broad and complex environment. And so it's, it's difficult to manage, to regulate, to legislate. And that's probably why we're finding some of the difficulties around so today. Yeah. projecting forward, what mm. could you see happening? Do you think it will get a lot more stringent in its ruling? Do you think that that's where we're going with it? I think three things are going to happen, and we can see them happening already. So first things first, uh, we're seeing regulation and legislation. We're seeing the, the the laws treat social media in a way that works. And um, previously, they didn't really. You know, If somebody did something bad, a person would have to find it, report it. The people that work at the social networks would have to do something about it. And that's a relatively slow process. And we've seen people uh, bullied, harassed. We've seen dark stuff on the internet through social media because it's post-moderated. Anything goes up, and then unless it's reported, it doesn't come down. But where um, do you even report it? Oh, it's, it's difficult, but the social networks are starting to play catch-up. So this is the second yeah. thing, is they're tightening up. Yeah. Um, they're hiring more people. So Facebook, Twitter, they have squadrons of staff whose job it is to, it's to look what's on the social networks um they're helped by us so this is this is this is what we can do and this is kind of the third point is on most of the major social networks you can report an account or a post a piece of content there's three little dots or a button that says report and there's various different ways you can report it you can say it's harmful or abusive you can say that they're faking it they're copying somebody else uh, and most of these things will result in that post or that account either getting deleted permanently or being taken offline for a short period of time so it can be checked. Mm. But still, it often appears first. It gets yeah. seen by people and it has an impact first. Yeah. I think that is what's quickly going to change. So three things. We've got legislation. We've got technology and teams improving at the social networks. But there's a big job for us to do. And I think a lot of people out there, they, they don't know that um, – uh, they have to do that third thing. They're relying on the, the, the uh, I suppose, the, the economy, the environment, the technology companies to do it themselves. Well, it's the word they. Why don't they, they. do something about it? Well, exactly. who is they? Who is they? Well, yeah. they yeah. is us. Mm, you know, mm, it's mm. us that have to do something yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of work, um, talk about social media being a distraction and it's an addiction. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that we've always had distractions and addictions and we've just found a new way of, of taking our pain or whatever yeah. it is that we want to avoid yeah. or procrastinate? Fascinating and finding a new avenue for it. Well, look, I think we've always enjoyed consuming media, whether it's watching your TV or being addicted to your Xbox or, I don't know, always reading those magazines that pile up on the side. Social media is very accessible. It's easy to pick up your phone and just start chatting to people, uh, flicking through the feed. And all of a sudden you're down what, what they call in the industry the rabbit hole. You, you've gone off piste and you're not just catching up with what your friends have been up to because you've reached the end. So you just keep going. Mm -hmm. And it might be that you're on a, I don't know, like a, a video streaming service and you just watch the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. You know, I'm, I'm certainly guilty of it, looking at my phone a bit too much. And over the last couple of years, I've tried to do it less. Uh, Instagram, for example, tells you when you're all caught up. Uh, ah. Your smartphones will often tell you how long you've spent on them yes, because they, they, they are being held to account. 
And I think it's all about balance at the end of the day. We've it, got to be aware of that. It is. I did hear something on the radio this morning, which I thought was very interesting. Um, and I, I can't remember where the quote was from, but it was a chap talking to um, a little girl and said, mm. you know, what superpower would you like? If you could have any superpower, what would you have? And she said, I'd talk to animals. And he said, oh, well, why talk to animals? And she said, well, because mummy and daddy are on their phone. I'd be able to talk to the cat. Oh. <laughs> That's got a kick, Isn't hasn't that a it? Moment? Yeah. 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 It's a really interesting topic. And I think there's also a whole thing around being present. And you see it no matter what walk of life you're in. Um, you'll be in a meeting and people might be emailing. They'll have their laptop open. It's something yeah. I see quite a lot in, in the world of work. And so we encourage people to, you know, tune in, you know, uh, pay attention, that kind of thing. At home, I'll try and ensure that uh, I'm doing things together with the family. And that means, you know, if we're if we're together, speaking, looking at each other, not, not kind of um, tuning into something else, whether it be a device or whether it be, you know, and there's old-fashioned things around the house always still, isn't there? Reading, yeah. watching the TV. Um, it's nice to balance... Um, information consumption with actual exercise. Get out and play on your bike, get in the garden, things like that. So it's, it's all about balance, I think. The technology industry, which manages all of these social networks, you know, they invented them. Uh, they are being held to account. They are trying to help us to do it in measure. However, they, they do generally have a vested interest in us, in us using them more. One of the things they've done is they've created a way of mixing up what we see. It used to be that, for example, when I first started using Twitter, uh, you open it up, and you see the most recent posts, it's chronological. Now, none of the major social networks are chronological. They're mixed up and, uh, by something called the algorithm. Mm. The algorithm is software that makes us, coming, it makes us um, see things in a slightly different order uh, so that we come back for more. But the other thing the algorithm does, and this is really key, is it might show us things that it thinks we like. Mm. Um, I'll give you for an example. Uh, when I open up my phone, it shows me things like uh, rugby, uh, sport, technology, you know, I'm into the tech news, stuff like that. Other people, it might show them something completely different. And you do tend to hear people tell stories about how they think social media makes them depressed because it shows them pictures of um, thin, pretty people, or it might make them suicidal because it shows them quotes that might be harmful. And these are quite uh, in the spotlight themes right now. Mm. The social networks are aware of this. They're trying to show a more balanced view of what's going on. But if somebody is feeling sad, they might gravitate towards sad content. And the algorithms do show us what they think we like. And it's something that we need to be aware of. And actually, by engaging with content, you'll see more of it. And the social networks don't just look at what you're reading on the social network. They see what you type. They see what you like. They see what you share. And all of a sudden, you're down this quite strange rabbit hole. And we need to be aware of that as well, because... Many are saying the social networks are responsible for body image disorders, uh, uh, mental illnesses, mm. and actually real world harm. So what do you think we can do to kind of break these algorithms as consumers wanting to look online? To, because quite frankly, I find it boring now since the algorithm. I'm reading the same things. How can we break the algorithm so mm. I can see pictures of cats again? Because I quite enjoyed it. <laughs> well, my number one tip is follow more cats. Yeah. No! Uh, no, I, um, I, have a, so I have a dog and I follow some dog accounts on social media. Yeah. It's quite nice. Nice, because you see, um, you see.
see just dogs doing cool stuff. Not the, like the weird stuff, you know, like, oh, here's a dog that talks because it yeah. was barking in a weird way. Um, a general tip, I would, a genuine tip rather, I would say is uh, f- follow, follow things every now and again. Um, we, we generally tend to start off on a social network, follow our friends, uh, then follow a few more. But then after we've been on it for a while, you do stop following people. Yeah, you do. And every now and again, I just like to discover what's new, uh, follow some new influences. One of my favorite uh, brands on social media at the moment is uh, National Geographic. Mm. I think they do a fantastic job of um, celebrating fascinating, interesting, scientific, geographical stories. Their Instagram account, for example, it's run by over 100 photographers. Uh, They all have access to it and they go around the world. They take some fantastic photos. And another thing that's useful as well is try to separate out. This is something I did a while ago, but try to separate out who follows you where. Um, about, About, I'd say, Five to ten years ago, closer to ten years ago, probably now, somebody on my Facebook said to me, and it was someone I knew through work. Uh, I think it was a client. They said, uh, "Drew, I think it's quite weird. Don't you think it's weird that I can see uh, photos of your kids on your Facebook?" And I said, "Well, no, I don't think so, because we're friends and we accepted each other." But then I had this realization that quite a few people on my Facebook weren't really friends. They were mm. just people I'd met, yeah. and it was just one of the big social networks of the time. And actually, um, that week, I deleted ninety percent of the people off my Facebook account, yeah. and I kept it just a very close friend friends, family. I uh, don't really have many people on there that I don't know that well. Uh, Twitter is slightly different. Uh, Twitter for me is a little bit like how people use LinkedIn. It's my professional yeah. uh, side. So I think that does help as well as separating out how you use the different ones. They they then feel uh, more interesting in different ways, I think. What do you think are some of the beacons of hope for, I don't know, a more positive future when it comes to social media? I think if we take a step back and think about how social media is shaping things in kind of in general, um, it gives a voice to those unheard voices that you might not otherwise have seen. Um, I do think that broadly speaking, the the environmental activism movement, I think, is is it's got to be seen as a good thing. Love or hate that some of their tactics or what their um, uh, what uh, some of the stunts that we see in the media eye are, um, uh, are doing, doing something good for the planet. And seeing that step change in front of our eyes, I think we've seen corporates, individuals, all taking the messages on board. And I think social media is a platform for democratization of of beliefs and of movements. And I think that's definitely one of the things I've seen in the last year that's just going to completely take off. And I think that's definitely a beacon of hope for us. So that being said... Society has been really influenced and changed by social media in the last 10 years. So what do you see the relationship of social media like, say, in another 10 years? Well, I think, broadly speaking, you could say over the last 10 years, social media has disrupted communications between us, uh, between organisations and their public. So it's it's changed journalism, media, advertising, but it hasn't really gone much further just yet. And I think that's what we're going to see over the next 10 years. Uh, we could see just the way that we have instant access to one another, to organisations, to governing bodies, and for information, but also ideas to take shape at lightning speed. I think we're going to see things like cures for illnesses discovered through millions of people interacting with something all at once. Uh, we could see more people turning out to vote. And if legislation and regulation and technology catches up as quick as we hope it might, we might even see fair elections <laughs> um, or even those that might not be swayed by a social media advert or an influencer who's not really real. So I think in the next 10 years' time, we're going to see disruption of pretty much every aspect of society that involves interactions between one another. 
And so whilst my talk is going to be looking at the good, the bad and the ugly, uh, some of the dark, but also some of the light, I've got bright hopes for the future of social media and um, I'm, I'm excited to be part of it as well. Well, we're looking forward very much to seeing you shine on the TEDx Bristol stage. How's this journey been for you? How excited are you? I'm incredibly excited. It's been fascinating. I've learned so much and I'm really looking forward to seeing the other speakers because they're coming from totally different worlds, from science to comedy to business. And I think it's going to be a fantastic day. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. So we're really excited to get you on that red circle in front of all of those people. Are you nervous or are you just like this? I was born for this moment you feeling good i'm so nervous <laughs> my uh my my trick is to um uh, uh probably drink a copious amount of caffeine uh just beforehand um and talk really quickly and talk really quickly <laughs> i've actually worked with a fantastic team at tedx bristol so far uh they've given me some advice on how to slow down and <laughs> yes and not get too excited and uh, i'm just really looking forward to it now yeah it's going to be fantastic well we're very happy to have you Thanks so much to Drew for joining us and sharing his story. Catch him alongside 15 other inspiring speakers at TEDx Bristol 2019 on the 17th of November at Bristol Old Vic. For more information on our speakers and to get your ticket, visit TEDxBristol.com. A huge thanks to our headline partner, Opus Talent Solutions, for making this podcast possible. And you can find out more about them at OpusTalentSolutions.com. Thanks for listening. Check out the other podcasts in our series and you can subscribe for free by tapping subscribe on the podcast app. And if you enjoyed it, tell your friends.